And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the show today. Of course, it's Monday. Here we are getting ready to wrap up the month of June already. And uh, moving into the month of July, of course, uh, the month of July tends to be a better month for markets, and I guess that's kind of good news after Friday's beating. Um, it's interesting this morning, already there's you know a lot of talk from the uh, headlines of the CNBC, etc. is like, markets in a correction, you know, what's going to happen next? We had one day of a sell-off. I mean, come on, <laughs> let's got to keep this in perspective, will we? Um, but a couple of things that we've been talking about now really kind of ad nauseum seems like over the last, you know, several weeks is kind of watching this money flow indicator and saying, hey, you know what, our money flow indicators are getting very elevated and we likely are going to have a correction. And we kind of been laying out in the newsletter over the last really month that probably sometime between the middle to end of June or 1st of July, we could see a 5% or, uh, correction or so. Now, we repeatedly kind of caveated that structure saying, hey, you know, the markets can do two things during a correction. One, they can just kind of go nowhere and just simply consolidate their gains. And, you know, we had big gains that kind of started in November, December of last year, uh, had a very strong start to this year. And then markets really kind of just stopped moving higher uh, over the course of the last month or so. Yes, we kind of hit some all-time highs, but it was very weak. And, and even the, the hits to new all-time highs were very mild in their nature. And, of course, then we had this correction here. Money flow indicators did turn negative uh, last week. Week. Money flows actually went negative on Friday. And importantly, what we saw on Friday was that the market not only didn't hold support at the 50 or the 20 day moving averages, don't worry about the mumbo jumbo too much. It's just simply that support didn't hold up. So now that does potentially bring in the risk of a little bit lower level in markets here short term. And again, we don't expect this correction to be very large. Uh, the reason is, is that already there was a good bit of selling kind of underneath the surface. There's, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, we take a look at the number of stocks above their 50-day moving average. A lot of that exuberance had already been kind of worked out of the market, even though the market was kind of holding up. Um, it was driven by fewer and fewer stocks kind of holding up the markets. That kind of gave way on Friday. And now the question becomes, with the rally that we're kind of, kind of expect out this morning, kind of out of the gate, futures are pointing positive right now. Um, does that actually get markets back above this resistance? So now that support we had previously of the 50 and the 20 day moving average is now becoming resistance. So the market needs to get above the 50 day moving average today and hold that to really kind of keep this bullish trend intact. Um, failing that, we're likely going to see a little bit bigger of a correction, correctional movement in the markets. And again, not a whole lot. Again, we're not expecting you know, a 30% decline here. We're not moving into a major crash period. It's just simply the markets were pretty extended here, needed a pullback, and that's what we're kind of getting. And again, of course, what's driving this, of, uh, of course, was talk last week from the Federal Reserve that, well, you know what, maybe time to start tapering some of this $120 billion a month in QE that we're putting into the markets. And uh, Governor, Fed Governor Bullard came out over the weekend talking about, hey, you know what, might need to be hiking rates a little bit sooner than expected. Now, look, Fed talk is cheap. 
and you're going to get a lot of it. Now, these are what we call these trial balloons, and this is how the Fed works. The Fed comes out and says, hey, you know, we're going to start hiking rates in six months. And if the market reacts very negatively, then you're going to have another Fed member come out and say, oh, no, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about or she doesn't know what she's talking about. We're not even thinking about thinking about hiking rates. And that's the way the Fed works. The Fed puts out these kind of messages to test the markets, test, test, kind of test psychology and see how things react. And then if things react very negatively and understanding that it's important for the Fed to keep asset prices elevated, keep market dynamics functioning properly because that's confidence, right? Uh, higher asset prices in their belief creates higher confidence in the economy. People go out and spend money because they're not worried about a recession or a market crash or losing value of their purchasing power. Um, so that gets individuals out there. So confidence is very important. This is the one thing the Fed depends on. So they try these trial balloons to see how the market reacts. Now, don't be surprised that this week, because of the correction that we saw on Friday, and if we get a little bit more correction this week, you know, after we get a little felled rally today, Get a little bit more correction tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday. If that occurs, don't be surprised to see some Fed members coming out going, ah, we're not even thinking about thinking about hiking rates anytime soon because they want to try to keep this asset price market supported. And that's very, this is very key to the game here. And particularly with the risk that you have asset managers, household equity ownership, uh, no matter how you kind of look at it, either individual retail participation, all of it's at all time highs, right? We've never seen this much participation in the markets ever, not even back in 1999, not in 2007. Equity ownership participation in markets now the highest level on record. Asset managers, highest level on records in some cases. Um, you know, so again, no matter kind of what indicator you look at, mat asset managers, uh, individuals, retailer, retail players, all very, very long equities. And that, that suggests that there's real risk to the downside here eventually if something does break and, and something will eventually change, right? There'll be some dynamic, some action, some market event that causes a change in sentiment and that will lead to a bigger correction. And when you have this many people, this long uh, equity ownership, you're gonna have a bigger correction in the market at some point. Now, are we starting that now? Probably not. But there are certainly some near-term concerns. Yes, we're going to get a rally today. What should you do with that rally? Use that rally to, to lighten up some positions, things that you that aren't performing well for you, things that uh, have been really kind of dragging your portfolio, things you're worried about. Use this rally today to try to clean some of that stuff up, reduce risk in portfolios. Because again, we have several sell signals in place that suggest that over the next couple of weeks, now it could be three, five, 10 days, over that period of, of time frame, we're likely going to see some weaker prices in markets as we kind of work through this correctional process, probably have a better buying opportunity for stocks coming up sometime in July. So again, just kind of be thinking about that with the, the amount of risk you're taking in portfolios right now and where we are with money. So some things we're going to talk about today, though, is uh, not only just markets, but also economics. Inflation and economic growth are likely peaking. And we'll talk about the multiplier effect to a degree as to does all this debt and stimulus actually create economic growth? That's that's the real question. This is the belief that we've now picked up here. Modern monetary theory, um, debts don't matter, deficits don't matter, just spend more money. But does it actually create economic growth? That's the, the, the one kind of unresolved answer that a lot of a, a lot of people have because they think that on the surface, just because you get an initial input of cash that, well, you're going to create economic growth. 
but is that really the case? And so we're going to look at some different evidence out there today um, as well and kind of go through some different ideas and, and constructive uh, commentary about really what is the benefit of all this debt and deficits. And look, there's two, there's two very inherent camps on this. There's those that believe all debt is just you know, basically eroding economic growth. I happen to be in that camp. And there's also the group that says, hey, debts and deficits don't matter. It's all good. Just spend more money. We're talking about doing an infrastructure plan. Is that going to solve the problem, right? Is, is that going to create it? I mean, you know, you take a look at things like high-speed rail. Does that solve our long-term economic problem. We'll talk about that when we come back after the break. I'm your host, Science Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest newsletter is out. Just simply click on the newsletter link. If you're not subscribed, make sure you subscribe at the website because that way we'll email you directly. And then, of course, we'll also email you our technical speaking report coming out tomorrow on markets and your money. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestment.com investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care july 8th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show the show this morning it's uh, 617 as we kind of get things underway headline out this morning gop rep louis gomert suggests altering the moon's orbit to combat climate change um there is more than enough anecdotal science you know science fiction evidence right take that as take that as a term science fiction evidence Right. There's a whole series on television right now on TNT, I think, and it's called Snowpiercer, which is based upon a, uh, a novel that was written about where we decide that we need to fix climate change. So we start messing with the atmosphere and it causes the entire planet to plunge into an ice age. And so now everybody's trapped on this train that goes around the, the Earth on a regular basis. And that's all of society is now in one train. Right. So. Interesting premise. What a metaphor. It is, it is a metaphor. You're just looping around the earth, you know, on this train run by Wilford Industries that, you know, and, and of course, the, the it's actually an interesting social commentary because when, have you watched the series? You're nodding your head. No, I'm agreeing with you. Okay, you're agreeing with me. Yes. Well, if you haven't watched the series, it's kind of an interesting commentary on social structure yes. because the whole train is is involved into people in first class all mm -hmm. the way back to the tailies. Mm -hmm. and, and the people in the back of the tail are the poor people, and they're oppressed, and they're eating God knows what. It's actually ground-up cockroaches is that they're that's what they're being fed. It's kind of like soil and green, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Soil and green is people. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're just eating cockroaches <laughs> in the back. But everybody in the front, you know, everybody in the first class, you know, they're eating steak and chicken and fish and those type of things. It's all raised on, everything's raised on the, on the, on the train. But the point is this train just goes around, you know, the earth because the entire earth is frozen because we decided we want to mess with the atmosphere. Stop messing with nature. <laughs> There's never, a, I mean, there's never a good outcome when you start trying to move the moon. See what happens. Yeah, as if you could. <laughs> as if it will look. Louie. I, I kept looking for the sarcasm font in that I know, story. I, it's that, not there. I know. You would think it was, uh, that was an article from The Onion. Yes. But, right? But, but, it, uh, but yeah. it's not. It's not. <laughs> Love Louie. He's a great guy. Stay in your lane. <laughs> okay. Stay in your orbit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, it's all for commentary, right? We all we are all looking for headlines. Today's stories. Uh, okay, so a couple of things happened last week. Um, of course, that were important for the markets. And as we were just talking about a second ago, markets, you know, kind of started this correction. The, this correction was was you know, evident. It was coming, right? Markets were just very extended. They were very, you know, rallies were extremely weak. So the sell-off on Friday, really not that big of a deal, um, you know, but this is part and parcel of, you know, the, the things that we've been talking about here on the show is that while markets are going up, people believe that markets are just going to go up. Right, and that nothing's going to cause that correction. And it's always a change in sentiment or attitude or some event that you're not expecting that creates that sell-off in markets. And again, that sell the, the market sell-off on Friday it was one percent, big deal. I mean, it's markets down one percent. You know, it's it it's not that much. But again, it's been so long, and the markets have been so complacent that all of a sudden a one percent sell-off is you know this big deal. And, you know, now you're getting, you know, headlines that are coming out this morning talking about, you know, this is the beginning of, the, of a bigger correction. Um, you know, it could be. You know, it very well could be. Mark Zandi, who's probably one of the worst economists on the planet, coming out saying that this is the beginning of a 10 or a 20 percent correction. It could be. It's probably not. And the reason is, is that you have too much exuberance in the markets and you still got the Fed pumping in $120 billion a month. They haven't cut that yet. And so that, you know, this idea that you're going to have a, a bigger correction at this point, it's possible. I'm not saying that it's possible or not possible. It is. But typically you don't have that size of a correction in the midst of a lot of a very bullish sentiment b a lot of retail participation which is what you have right now and c you've got the fed still continuing on with 120 billion a month in in qe now when when are you going to get that 20% correction right that'll be when the fed starts to actually taper they they're just thinking about talking about tapering right now they haven't started anything Maybe in and maybe in August when they all kind of converge on Jackson Hole and have their central banker confab, maybe they'll come back and talk about you know potentially tapering QE a bit. Still not even talking about rate hikes. If you want to know when the clock is going to start ticking for a much bigger correction or a recession, that's roughly about nine to twelve months from when they start to taper and or hike rates give or take. 
things will adjust that time frame somewhat. But it'll be interesting because we just had a, a recession in 2020. It was man-made economic shutdown, right? It wasn't a naturally occurring recession. But we were in need of a recession because we'd had such a long economic expansion to begin with, right? Got it. The recessions are a good thing. We've talked about this on the show before. Recessions are a good thing. They reset the economy to provide a more healthy outcome longer term. Problem is, is we don't allow recessions to actually work. Recessions are supposed to be there to reduce debt loads, reduce excesses, et cetera. And we keep intervening into them ever since the financial crisis and stops the recession from creating a more healthy, organic economic environment. But this is why you also have people talking about the problems of capitalism now. You know, it's interesting, one of the kind of the talking points of critical race theory, which is now a big topic with the educational system, is the evils of capitalism. And that capitalism should not be based on a system where merit is rewarded should be based on a system of equal outcomes and equal opportunity. That's socialism, by the way, right? Equal outcomes on equal opportunity is socialism. Capitalism is, the, is a system that rewards those that take risk and achieve success. So if you're willing to take the risk and you're willing to work hard, you're willing to do the right things. We talked about this last week. If you're willing to do those things, capitalism functions just fine. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. What's wrong with the economy at the moment is corporatism. And I've got an article, part one of an article coming out about this on Friday. And we're going to, we're going to, over the next two Fridays, we'll delve into the problems between capitalism and corporatism. That'll be on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com. Now, the point that, that is, that is important to take away here, though, is that Capitalism as a function is working just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And if and when you start messing with capitalism in terms of not allowing recessions to do their job of, of resetting the system, this is how you wind up with system inequalities. You wind up with corporatism and you wind up with a bunch of people coming up with stupid ideas about equality and equal outcomes. Those don't create better outcomes. They create lesser incomes and lesser outcomes. That's what I meant to say. And it actually does create lesser incomes as well. But, you know, that's not what you want. So if you want to know when the next recession is going to occur, when if you want to know when the next downturn is going to happen, you only have to watch really three things. What the Fed is doing in terms of monetary policy, what interest rates are doing, or is the Fed raising or lowering interest rates, and importantly, watch the yield curve. In September of 2019, the yield curve was inverted. We were writing a lot of articles on our website at that time saying, hey, look, the yield curve is inverted. This has started the clock. It's about nine months to the next recession. October, November, December, January, February, March. It was six months before the recession. 
yield curves tell you pretty much everything you know about economic downturns. So put everything else aside, put aside all the other nonsense that's out there, pay attention to Fed policy, pay attention to interest rates, pay attention to the yield curve. If that, those three will guide you pretty much in that regard. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm getting a lot of emails going, you know, hey, the market sold off on Friday. Should I be all in cash? No, that's not good risk. The market was down 1%. Let's keep this stuff into perspective. And I've been, I've been reiterating on the show almost daily, ad nauseum, <laughs> in our three minutes in markets and money, been reiterating, hey, look, we, we are set up here for a 5% correction. Markets could just consolidate. The important takeaway of all these signals is that upside is likely limited. That's all we've been saying. We talked about reducing risk in portfolios just to hedge off against this potential kind of downturn. So now we got it. Now we're looking for the opportunity to put some money back to work here at a little bit lower level. Is that today? No. Is that this week? Maybe. We'll see. We're going to move through the signal pretty quickly, and I'm going to go through the signal in much more detail in today's three minutes on markets and money. So make sure you're subscribed at the website. Just simply click our YouTube channel, subscribe there, and when we publish out three minutes on markets and money, we'll no notify you. But that'll be here just before the market opens. We'll have that out this morning. We'll go through the signal in more detail. But we're moving through that signal pretty quickly, so we want to pay attention to what the next opportunity is. Be right back after the break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about negative multipliers of debt. Don't go away. listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July I ate at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. <laughs> and welcome to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. It is, of course, uh, The Real Investment Show, as we always get into here. Uh, interesting... Uh, couple of articles out over the weekend, by the way, I just wanted to touch on real fast because I want to talk about debt. And this all kind of ties in. So we're going to get there, right? So the government's making this big push right towards green energy. And, uh, you know, right now they're talking about this whole infrastructure package. And this is going to include high-speed rail because, you know, Japan has high-speed rail and they get people everywhere. And so we need high-speed rail too. And so we should invest a lot of money into high-speed rail. We've been trying to do high-speed rail for about the last 15 years now in California, they spent $6 billion on a railroad that's not even finished yet. And it's one line between two cities and the $6 billion in the hole. <laughs> okay, yes, it's California, but you get my point. Uh, High-speed rail is problematic for a lot of reasons. One, people don't ride trains that much, but it's a different story. Second of all, it's a 
problem that we also have with Amtrak. Been trying to fund Amtrak for years. Amtrak cannot be profitable. We keep having to bail it out. So, you know, this whole idea of infrastructure is important. And we've talked about before that infrastructure has to be a productive investment that creates its own return and pays for the debt over time. That's what infrastructure is. Or it has a user fee. And we talked about the fact that, you know, People driving Teslas are going to have to start paying a user fee underneath this new infrastructure bill in order to pay for it, right? So this is everybody's got to pay their fair share, to coin a term. <laughs> but the reason I bring this up is that over the weekend, of course, now there's this whole big push by the government for green energy and green cars. And we're going to provide billions of dollars of incentives for companies to make electric vehicles. Great. No problem, right? Infrastructure is not infrastructure if it requires a tax credit to get somebody to buy it. Okay? But nonetheless, now automobile companies are all jumping on board. Audi just announced over the weekend they're going to be totally electric by 2025. Right? There'll be no ICE engines in Audi cars by 2025. Ford, GM, others are all jumping on the bandwagon committing billions of dollars into electric vehicles because that's what the administration wants. Now, uh, let me clear. Let me be clear about this. The administration right now is focused on giving car companies money to build electric vehicles. So, of course, they're all jumping on board. Now, next president comes along in 2024 and says, ah, pff, we're not doing that. You know, if you want to build electric vehicles, that's you. That's capitalism. You win or lose by making your decisions. All of a sudden, automobile companies are going to go, hey, guess what? We're building more ice combustion engines, right? Companies are going to do what administrations are promoting, especially if you're giving away free money to do it. So they're not stupid. We learned this with Carrier Industries. Carrier Industries, we talked about this before, moved an entire plant from Mexico back to Indiana to appease the administration because United Technologies has massive government contracts, and that's who owned Carrier Industries at the time. So, look, companies make a, companies say a lot of things and do a lot of things doesn't mean those things actually come to fruition. Now, are electric vehicles going to be a thing? Yes, right? We're all moving in that direction. But will they be 100% of production of all, electric, of, of all car companies? That will depend on administrations going forward, policies. But again, infrastructure is not infrastructure if it requires a government subsidy to get somebody to buy something. And the reason I bring this up is because now let's talk about the benefit of debt. If you take a look at the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve as compared to the debt of the U.S. government. The CBO just came out recently and ran their projections through 2050 for the amount of debt that will be issued by the government to pay for all the stuff we want to pay for based on current run rates. That's expected to top $140 trillion of debt by 2050. We're basically about $30 trillion now, so do the math. The Fed is expected to own 30% of that debt, which means their balance sheet's going to run north of $40 trillion versus seven, or almost eight now. So you get the magnitude of this. 
The point, though, is, is that if we're spending all this debt, right, this is MMT, this is modern monetary theory, he says, hey, we don't need to worry about debts and deficits because debt is, it's just a balance sheet item, right? Except you got to pay for that balance sheet item, right? There's this whole thing called interest, and you got to pay the interest on the debt. So there was a, you know, a lot of the opinion about this comes down to is, well, you know, debt's not really that big of a thing, except the problem is it is a thing. And it takes more and more debt to create a dollar's worth of economic growth. Back in the 1970s, it took about 40% of debt, or sorry, 40 cents of debt to create a dollar's worth of economic growth. So in other words, you know, a company would go borrow some money. And they would build a plant. They would hire some people to produce something. So the leverage ratio was well intact. So 40 cents of debt, I could leverage that up and create a dollar's worth of growth. Not a bad deal. Interest rates were high, too, and they were still doing that. So think about the cost of high interest rates. It's really not as much as you think. It's all about economic growth. But as we've gone forward in history and, and have decided that debts and deficits don't matter, and each administration comes into government and runs bigger debts and bigger deficits, it has taken more and more debt to create that dollar's worth of economic growth. Today, we're running roughly about $5 of debt for every dollar's worth of economic growth. It's not a good buy. But yet, we still have this whole group of politicians and economists running around saying debt doesn't matter. It matters. And history tells you it matters. You complain about capitalism and that capitalism sucks and everybody can't get ahead and everybody complains about the whole wealth gap thing. Well, guess where it's coming from? It's coming from the very policies that you're pushing. Equality, as we were talking about it in, in the last segment, equality of opportunity leads to a wealth gap. Equality of opportunity pushes the bottom 80% to the lowest possible denominator in the economy. The top 10 to 20% will own all the assets and all the business and all the money. That's what equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes will get you. There's no such thing. There will be those that win and those that lose. And in an environment where you have equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes, that means everybody will participate at the lowest possible common denominator. If you want a good example of equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes, look at the social ladder of China. But debt as a function is problematic because, again, as we've talked about, the more debt you put on, the less economic output you're going to get. And if we take the CBO projections and project that through 2050 and compare that to average GDP growth on a 10-year average, we're looking at GDP growing at less than 1% by 2050. Now, do you think a 1% economic growth rate is going to get you equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes? I don't think so. And this is and this is the real problem of this. And and when we start talking about you know the issue of what you get out of dollars worth of debts, there was an actually very interesting study out from George Mason University 
Two economists actually did the work, looked at the evidence, and of course, uh, as we've gone through on the show numerous times, you know, debt doesn't create economic prosperity. And we talk about the multiplier effect. So if I take a dollar's worth of debt and I put it into the economy, what's my return on that? And economists are quick to run around and go, look at what stimulus did, right? We threw all the stimulus into the economy and we're creating, you know, you know, a dollar and a half of, of multiplier for every dollar's worth of debt we spent. It's very temporary. People are running out spending stimulus checks, but now what? Now you've pulled forward all of this spending. You've pulled forward five years worth of spending to today to get this bump in the economy because of debt. I gave you money to spend. You went and spend it. Great. Now what? What are you going to spend now? It's gone. Unless you're going to do more. And nobody's talking about doing more stimulus checks right now. We can't even agree on an infrastructure bill for eight years worth of spending. Right? This is a quote from the study. The multiplier looks at the return in economic output when the government spends a dollar. If the multiplier is above one, it means the government spending draws in private sector and generates more private consumer spending, private investment, and exports to foreign company, countries. If the multiplier is below one, it means the government spends out the sector. In other words, they reduce the spending and investment because they crowd out private investment. And that's exactly what we're watching happen. The evidence suggests that government purchases probably reduce the size of private sector as they increase the size of the government sector. On net, incomes grow, but privately produced incomes shrink. In other words, I gave you money. And so if you take a look at incomes, right, incomes are up. Wage growth, not. And you've now got 42% of disposable personable incomes coming from government transfers. That's not healthy organic growth. They conclude by saying this. There are no realistic scenarios where the short-term benefit of stimulus is so large that the government spending pays for itself. In fact, the positive impact is small and much smaller than economic textbooks suggest. This is, of course, without taking into account of future taxes. And if you raise taxes to pay for the spending, that says that the multiplier effect could be close to zero or even negative. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Riding down the wall. Very suspicious. Let it back the fall. Something my own baby. Broken of Seven years so bad. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome 
Welcome back to this morning show. All right, we're getting into the last segment here. Let's answer some of our YouTube uh, questions this morning. Um, <laughs> as I was scrolling through the list of uh, commentary, by the way, thank you for all, all of you joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Um, there's a there's a disclaimer right in the middle of the chat window that says, "Welcome to live chat. You remember to guard your privacy and abide by our community guidelines." Right. We need to boost our channel. Right. We need we need some help. We need all of you to help us boost our channel. So please put on here a whole lot of, you know, social justice stuff, right? Because <laughs> if you'll just type in a bunch of good commentary about social justice and how great it is, that'll just, you know, the YouTube, the YouTube robots and It'll all that will jack just, up the just algorithm. jack up the algorithm, yeah. right? It's all about getting into the algorithm. We all know the truth, but like I said, play the game, play the game. I'm just sort of teasing. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get some questions this morning. Um, all right, so got a uh, question here about reverse repo. The actually a couple. Um, so there's a couple of things going on right now with the repo market. Now we got to kind of go back in history a little bit to understand kind of where we are now versus where we were then because they're a little bit different and. If we go back to September of 2019, Mike and I were on the show talking about reverse repo then, and we were using the example that if you don't understand what the repo market is, the repo market is where banks can borrow money basically overnight, and they have to exchange collateral for that money, and they provide AAA collateral for that money. And back in September of 2019, there was something breaking in the markets. It was early, and you know we were we, we were looking at this. Of course, yield curve was inverted at that time, and there were some things going on. And we said, "Look, there is something wrong with the the market at this moment, and we don't know what's going on, but people are showing up with AAA credit and being charged junk bond rates." And we use the, the kind of the example that if I showed up at your house with a fully paid for Mercedes AMG, right, brand new, still got paper tags on it, I pull up in front of your house and I go, look, this is my car is fully paid for. And if you don't like Mercedes, pick another car, right? So <laughs> whatever your favorite car, that's what I drove up in. It's an example. Um, so, you know, I pull up, I say, look, here's the keys to my car. I just want to borrow $10,000 for tonight, and I'm going to pay you back the $10,000 tomorrow. If I don't, you keep my car. Now, would you do that? First of all, would you make me, would you loan me the money? Okay. The answer is yeah, sure I would. For $10,000, I'm going to get an AMG. If you don't pay me back, pff, done. But now you also get to charge me an interest rate for overnight. Now, the going interest rate is less than 1%. At that time, the overnight rate was about half a percent. But instead of charging me the overnight rate, you said, yeah, I'll loan you. Yeah, give me your car and I'll loan you $10,000 overnight. And I'm going to charge you 8% for the money. So tomorrow when you show up, you're going to pay me an 8% APR. That's the VIG, as they say in Vegas for that loan. And people are going, okay, because I got to have the money. 
that tells you something's broken in the market. You're getting triple A fully secured government guaranteed collateral and charging 8% for it overnight. Something broke in the system. And of course, the Fed was doing behind the scenes, the Fed was funding this repo market, basically doing QE at that time through the repo market to try to stabilize that. And that took through the end of the year. Again, something was broken then because you had an inverted yield curve telling you that something was wrong. And we were going to have a recession, most likely in 2020, with or without the economic shutdown and the pandemic. As is, as, as is always the case, what causes an economy to shut down or have a recession, et cetera, is always some unanticipated, some event that occurs. Generally, it's an, a, a credit-related event, a.k.a., you know, the financial crisis. We shut down Lehman, you know, bankrupted Lehman, and that, you know, started the dominoes falling at that point. But it could be anything. And it's always unexpected. It's always something we're not paying attention to. So if you're if you're looking at economic growth, or you're looking at something like that right now, something, you know, China. If you're looking at something like that right now, that's not that's not going to be the issue. Whatever you're focused on right now is the issue for the markets or the economy is not the issue that causes it. Because the markets factor those things in. If we if you're reading about it on a headline somewhere, if somebody's writing an article about how this or that is happening and it's going to cause this major meltdown in the markets or the economy and you need to all be in cash and buy gold, that ain't it. Because the markets have already factored that in. It's always the unexpected exogenous event that takes the markets by surprise and sends everybody fleeing for the door. And as in the crowded theater example, it's a lot of people in a big room and a very small door to get out. And that's the problem with the markets today because we don't have any liquidity in the markets. So the difference between the repo problem back then and the repo problem today is, A, we don't have an inverted yield curve. Secondly is, is there is something going on inside of the repo market, but it's not a problem of liquidity at this point. So it's not a issue at this moment that is going to cause a much bigger problem for the markets. Could it evolve into that? Yes. And again, the thing to watch there is what the rate is being charged for those overnight repos. Again, where we start talking about some of this issue kind of going forward is whether or not the underlying support of the market liquidity as an example, is becoming problematic. And, and we're not there just yet, but we're close. And I think the problem that is going to get into in the next few months is if the Fed does indeed try to start tapering off some of this excess liquidity. There is, a, there is an argument by more bullish kind of mainstream media people that QE doesn't have anything to do with the stock market. That's simply just banks borrowing money from the Fed and buying bonds with it and doing whatever they do, right? Just excess, all it is is just excess reserves. 
that may or may not be the case. There's plenty of arguments to suggest that that money finds its way, that excess liquidity finds its way into the markets through the prop desk of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and hedge funds that they give leverage to, right? Hedge funds have access to the windows as well. So plenty of arguments and really plenty of evidence that says that QE finds its way into the markets. And, and plus, given the very high correlation between markets and, and QE, it's an easy kind of argument to make. But let's assume just for a moment that the liquidity actually never even gets to the markets. It just stays trapped between the Fed and the banks, right? That's just It just resolves over there. And banks are supposed to use that to make money by making loans. Well, if you take a look at bank loans, they're falling through the floor right now. Banks aren't making any loans. And that's why monetary velocity is not increasing. So that theory is pretty much... <laughs> Not true. But let's just assume that's the case. And banks are just making loans and it has nothing to do with the markets. It's psychology. Investors believe that QE finds its way into the markets. So when the Fed does QE, they go buy stocks. So if the Fed starts to reverse their QE and, re and reverse their liquidity, psychology changes. And you saw a little bit of that on Friday. Now, Friday, there was a lot of things going on Friday. Yeah, the markets were down 1%. I know, terrible. Crashed in the day. <laughs> but that was really two parts. I mean, a little bit of it was the Fed statement, but it was quadruple witching. You know, I had somebody ask me today, what's, what's quadruple witching? Is it, you know, when four options expiration contracts, uh, four option contracts, types of contracts expire all at once, or is it a bad day in a polygamous marriage? Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but, you know, when you have all that volatility in one day, I mean, everybody's kind of trying to reset positions, and if they're all on kind of one side of the long coin, which is kind of where they were, then all of a sudden you have all these options contracts expire, so they have to sell positions and rebuild positions, and it's a lot that goes on, so you get these outsized days of volatility, which we saw on Friday. Still doesn't matter. We still triggered sell signals. We still have done, you know, kind of impacted some neg negative sentiment in the market, suggests that we're going to have a little bit more volatility this week. And again, as we talked about in the opening segment, I would probably use this rally today to lighten up on some positions and kind of reduce risk, at least temporarily, until we get through this sell signal. Now, we're moving qu pretty quickly through it, and we're going to talk more about that in our three minutes uh, video today. So make sure you go by the website and pick up our three minutes on markets and money. Um, we'll also post it here to our YouTube channel as well. But these are the things that we need to pay attention to. And again, you know, is repo a problem? This was a long answer to a, uh, to a simple question. Is repo the problem right now? Probably not. But again, I wouldn't dismiss it entirely. There's plenty of things out there that could could happen that could all of a sudden make repo a real problem. So, again, just kind of pay attention to that. Um, hey, thanks for joining the show today. We appreciate you as always. We'll be back tomorrow for Technically Speaking Tuesday. We're going to go through the Commitment of Traders report tomorrow because uh, where option traders are playing tells you a lot about what to expect in markets in the, in the next few months. So we're going to cover that tomorrow here on the show. Meantime, have a great day. Again, take a little bit of profit today. Wouldn't hurt you. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Have a great day. Fast world.
Sweet!